Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler. Here with me, of course, are Janice Min and Richard Rushfield from Los Angeles. And uh, in just a little bit, we'll talk with uh, Yale PhD candidate and historian David Vince Kimmel, who's going to talk about, oh, you know, some uh, old original hard copy script he found uh, for a movie called Gone with the Wind, uh, which had a great piece this week on the Ankler with some uh, a lot of new insight, uh, including some script notes uh, that were very revealing. So we'll dive into that in a little bit. And Janice, we're just a few days away from the next stream event. The Anklers going live or in person uh, Wednesday, March 8th. And we have some new people joining on Wednesday. Yeah, we do. Um, we have, let's see, let me see what names I can tell you right now. We <laughs> yes, have <let's>, who's official. <laughs> who's official. We have Rich Paul. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Big sports and uh, Adele's uh, bow, I guess. Is that? Uh... <laughs> I think he prefers to not lead with that. But um... Okay, fair enough. You know, he's a lot. He only represents some of the biggest athletes in the world, Janice. It's no big deal. He stands you know. on his own. Um, right? <laughs> yeah, so... I'd, say, I'd say so. <laughs> so Rich Paul is doing, uh, he's doing a conversation on the stage about uh, the sports media landscape in the streaming era. Awesome. Um, yeah, it'll be good. We have a, um, a, an, a panel about intellectual property uh, franchises versus originals. And it's a, that's, it's a great lineup for starters, Franklin Leonard, who I think a lot oh, of our great. audience knows is the moderator. So I am delighted to have Franklin join us on the stage. Um, and we will have joining him, um, uh, Sky, uh, Skydance media president, Jesse Siskold, uh, and uh, some other big names we will be announcing, hopefully even as soon as later today. Great. Okay. So that's, uh, again, Wednesday, March 8th, and uh, still some tickets available, John or Janice, or what's the latest? Uh, yeah, uh, I would, if you, yeah, not not very many left. I'm not sure there are at all, but email events at theankler.com if you uh, would like to register to attend. Um, and Sean, of course, I neglected to mention our headliners of, of course, um, yeah. just to remind uh, people, yeah. yes, they're still coming. So yeah, yeah that's the, oh yeah, Tony Vincicara, uh, Tom Ryan, yep. you're doing that interview Tom with Ryan the CEO from... of Paramount Streaming. Yep. Yep. Jeremy Zimmer, the CEO of UTA and uh, Rita Farrow, the president of Disney Advertising. Um So uh, it should be a really good and smart event. Um, And we will be putting up the audio if our producer and i figured this out um next week after it happens uh and and we will also the, all the conversations will be uh we'll have video as well um and sean you have to buy your plane ticket or i mean sorry you have to book your hotel or we'll have to find someone with a lovely guest house for you if you don't i think ben and jaylo i settled that this morning in the in the, in the wake up janice I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure they're i hope their escrow closes in time so i can stay at their guest house i uh, yes. They this won't even balance. notice you're there until like you're packing up to go. It looks um, very large. <laughs> very quiet guest, Janice. So there's a kitchen in the guest house. Yeah. I'll be fine. <laughs> okay, um, good. Fantastic. So when I will uh, see you all. Uh, in and Richard in will be there. Uh, I, yes, I would hope Richard so. Richard, will be you'll be there, there right? Absolutely. Uh, maybe with a hat. Oh, <laughs> there's a lead. I like that. <laughs> but but no one is making Richard take the stage and interview someone because that that apparently is not Richard's thing. He's like, he's right. going to be an observer. Right. He's going to heckle us, Janice. Be careful. I know. <laughs> we, we now have a question from the audience. It'll be Richard guy in a hat and it'll be uh, Richard coming up, I think. So uh, we'll have to keep an eye out for you, Richard, uh, there at the event at uh, UTA, UTA headquarters. Uh, UTA headquarters. In, uh, Beverly Hills there. So. Uh, and remember, you can follow us on the socials uh, at The Angler, of course, across all platforms and subscribe to The Angler at theangler.com. To get the full suite of newsletters and podcasts, which uh, this week uh, ESG had a a fond look back at uh, Bob Iger's first hundred days. He may not be running for president, but he doesn't mean he can't get a hundred day uh, evaluation. Janice, well, well it's a it's his second first one hundred days. First hundred, to be yeah. clear. Although ESG probably didn't do a first hundred days uh, evaluation way back in whatever that year was. I, I'm not sure ESG was born then. So. <laughs> but, yeah, a different era in media certainly uh-huh. uh, back then on the first the first first hundred days. Uh, so we had uh, Ari doing a, or sorry, we had AI Ari doing an earnings call, which was Wait, um, explain that explain for people who. Yeah, so on the uh, Endeavor earnings call this week, uh, Ari Emanuel, the CEO of Endeavor, 
um, who, of course, leads the call, decided to uh, essentially deliver his opening remarks via AI, a company called, I think it's called Speechify, which they work with. And which, which they work with or they bought? Uh, he said work with. So they're not, okay, it's not okay. part of the, they're, you know, to, or do work with, I should, okay, however okay. you want to interpret it. It's very broad. So, but obviously he's very big on the company. Um, and let him, let the, that, it was kind of it wasn't his voice, but it sounded like Ari, I guess, was the gist, but uh delivered the opening remarks. So that was interesting. Um, but numbers are generally good over there. And uh just one big note of the WWE stuff, you know, clearly said we do not we're not looking to take on more debt. So if there's gonna be a deal that's made, it'll probably be some sort of an equity or you know, partnership of sorts if uh that does transpire. So and, and that's their belief to be the leading um, contender as a buyer certainly comcast and endeavor are probably one and two at this point uh just because okay. of existing relationships and so forth so uh but nothing official nothing you know nothing nothing to see here janice of course but okay we shall but it won't be a we're taking on another six billion in capital from silver lake to uh to do the deal do the deal kind of thing or nine billion sorry uh, well you know sean <laughs> the thing that when i was reading your breakdown of the earnings i thought uh that the number that stood out to me was what a tiny tiny percentage representation the representation business was of endeavor revenue now yeah it's about, i mean it's about a third it's not i mean it's it's not insignificant but of the three business lines they currently have the revenue i think was about 1.2 uh, for the for the fourth quarter revenue was 1.2 billion and representation which is essentially just wme was about 400 million of that so you know it's not it's important but it's not what you think endeavors um financial health is not reliant upon william morris you know uh so if a strike happens they're not they stress this a bit in the call is not reliant upon you know uh william morris endeavor to deliver the goods if they have uh some some austerity due to uh a scripted writer strike so that's you know important and it's it's not wrong it's very it's a very important point and he, he pointed out the top three uh sfod services that they do deals with um you know supplied a little over 100 million dollars uh last year you know in revenue for them so out of 1.2 billion and one quarter so you're talking you know over four billion in revenue for uh, sorry over five billion in revenue for the year they're not reliant upon streaming deals to uh you know to keep the lights on at, at endeavor so richard does this make your heart go pitter patter hearing these <laughs> hearing these numbers i it, it it's i mean the when when the when the deal was going and the ipo was happening i mean the 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 number of people that declared uh declared endeavor about to go out of business and the thing about the shutdown and Ari's plan insanity and the idea that they can move beyond the representation business just complete hubris um so have to have to tip the hat uh and uh and uh, maybe some admits on the predictions of doom for them uh following Ari plan were a little uh, little premature maybe yeah, he kept it together. I mean, you know, they still have when they're working on the debt. They paid off, I think, about five hundred million ish, maybe, of uh, the debt this year. So that was the big other question, Richard, when that was going on. They were taking on too much debt, you know, uh, at the time, and they've evolved essentially into you know into a, a live events company, Janice. It's it's really what dominates. You're talking UFC and and PBR to an extent. The the bull riding league they own all, um, all my favorite sports. All your, <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was always it was always. Uh, the plan there that they would that that representation would become a small part of their of their business there that it would be sort of the driver of the other uh, of the other businesses but that it wouldn't be uh, the the main revenue source. Well, so Richard, is this like you know, this is maybe a good segue into the piece you wrote? But is that was that like uh, some foresight looking down the road uh, about how where the industry was going? I mean. That maybe commissioning yeah. off uh, actors wasn't a growth business. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's always been a, it, it's always been a difficult business, and and uh, and it, I, th- I think it, it wasn't the business that Ari saw for himself. Certainly, uh, spending his time, he, he was very, been very explicit about uh, he's he's not he's not the guy who's going to go with his clients to a meeting and hold their hands during it, and he had his and. 
They would sort of talk those. He has much bigger things on his mind, but uh, it's 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 really hard to grow there, especially in a they're especially in a world where uh, it's hard to break out big stars. And and he had some prescience there. Well, yeah, and you think about it in the context of the other agencies, Janice, where the, you know uh, there's been talk, you know, does CAA go public now that they're merged with their essentially acquired ICM and what does UTA do? And, you know, they're still primarily agency business. You know, there isn't anything else that, uh, and those umbrellas that, that brings in a, a lot of revenue. So, and, you know, they would be greater you know, affected by a strike or a slowdown in ordering new series, things like that, where Endeavor has essentially insulated themselves rather well. They were hit by COVID obviously big, but, uh, but they've kind of, yeah, uh, built a little, a sizable kingdom over there that's uh, growing and live events are only growing and UFC is growing. So a lot of, you know, well, I'm going to ask sense. Jeremy Zimmer about this when yes. I interview him next week. I'll be, <laughs> he I'm doesn't... Sure he'll be first to uh, credit Ari and, uh, and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and his uh, visionary <laughs> foresight. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay. So Richard, you've started this, like this, like thing in your column now. Which is very dramatic, but not the countdown. Not countdown. The countdown, but it's not not wrong. So it's I, I would call it the abyss countdown. Is that yeah? yeah. Okay. I, I, I you know I've, I've I've predicted the end of the world uh, a number of times in the last <laughs> few years, but but this time I might be right. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 strike is coming. Uh, it couldn't come at a worse time. Uh, Would have been great if they had. If if everyone had rolled up their sleeves and the studios had had uh, dealt with this stuff two years ago, so we don't have, uh, we're, so we're not having to deal with it now. But 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 uh, here you are, and it's uh, it, it's very complicated issues. I mean, it's the 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 there's the basic terms by which writers survive are are, are clearly no longer sustainable, but it's also not clear what the solution to that is so it's it's uh it's it's going to be quite a, th- a showdown and and the writers guild also had a had had a uh, big piece of news this week that david young their chief negotiator is leaving for medical leave um and he's being uh replaced by uh by his deputy i think who who um i don't i don't know her Pe- people seem to think she's able but uh, able person but uh, has never been the mm. chief negotiator in a situation like this. So, um, you know, about how many days do we have left here now? 60, 60 some as of today, I think it's more Less like 50, 50, yeah. upper 50s somewhere, 57 as of today. Yeah. And, you know, the concessions always come at the, at the final minute. So it's, so it, it's, it's hard to see progress from the outside. Uh, although, you know, the fact that. Um, I, I had uh, breakfast yesterday with someone, I mean, and this is, and I, cause I want you to actually explain more of what you heard from the, you talked to 20 writers. This yeah. Week I mean, your column, yeah, this was great, Richard. Really the, I mean, the person I talked to yesterday who I think associates with way too many high level people was saying, <laughs> um, I mean, it's so bad there. People are selling their second homes and, <laughs> you know, and so, yes, that's like a change of lifestyle here for, I think people at the top, but the WGA has, is it, is it 20,000 members, I believe? Um, and you the, talked to 20 of those people. Yes, yes, uh, a, a, a notable sliver. Uh, and um, they, uh, yeah, I mean, the no one wants a strike of the people I talk to. The people I talk to are all working writers. I tried to talk to people. I talked to some who are just starting out on their first jobs. I talked to some who are very well established and uh, and, and renowned and and a lot of people in between. Um, and had a real consensus that, I mean, none of them wants at all to strike or is excited about this. I mean, there may, there may be people who are unemployed who are just looking to looking for a, uh, some fun on the picket lines, but, you know, they, they recognize this, all all of them recognize that if they go on strike in the short term, it's going to have a really, uh, bad effect on their, on, on, on their work. Uh, and not, but not one of them was, they they all they all felt that this is a time we have that this this we can't go on like this this is totally unsustainable we can't live this way and if 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 it's not dealt with now two years from now it will be too late and the the conditions will be 
set in stone. The Writers Guild will have lost all its teeth. The other unions will have followed suit and and accepted token handouts. Um, so they all realize this this is not the best time to be doing it uh, as as the country as as uh, as as the the companies are sort of uh, reeling with uh, the the problems from the streaming wars and the economy, but uh, it's kind of now or never. And 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 I didn't I didn't talk to a single person who was who, who said anything like, "I will vote against the strike authorization." Well, I, there are a couple of quotes in here I thought are worth uh, sharing. Um, for someone who I think is a known, pretty well-known writer, if I'm not mistaken, who said to you, um, I'm at the part of my career where in the olden days, it would have been who wants a deal, as in he could have gotten an overall deal somewhere, or she, I don't know if it's a he or she. Now it's like, who wants a pay cut? I've heard that happen a bunch of times. So people not only have shorter seasons. Um, shorter you know, seasons, ask to do more. I, I've heard... I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't even fit all the horror stories in there that I that I heard, and we've we've covered them on the Anchor. But there, there were a lot of things like the the writers' rooms finished. They have these these mini rooms for a mini amount of time, but uh, in the twenty weeks that they have to write a season, you can't actually write a season. So they're done and they're paid and they're on. Hopefully, their next show, and the studio says, "Oh, by the way, you're, we never got to your episode, so you've just got to write that on your own and send it to us." Uh, yep. I, I, I've heard that multiple times. Wow. Uh, you know, just things that are just com- completely uncontrolled. And, and, you know, it comes from, so the, the, you can protest, but the show's out of money. So what are you going to do? Uh, that go through years of, arbit- you know, little lower mid-level writer, go through years of arbitration to try to get your, your $10,000 someday. Right. Um, it's, uh, it, so it's, uh, it's just it's just a really bad situation situation and uh but it's hard to see the, the so so part of that part of the complexity of this that I'll get into next week is if so so say the studios say um okay you you're one thing is you're mandated to have this many writers for this many weeks so that all comes in theory that that doesn't mean the studio has to put more money into the show to uh, to support that, they can just say, "Okay, well, you're you have the budget of eighty million, and now you're required out of that to do that to do that." So, it's money comes out of everything else for for the show that creates problems everywhere else in the uh, in in the ecosystem. So it's 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 a really complicated uh, uh, mess that would be nice if the I, I don't you know it in a perfect world the the streamers and would view this in a holistic way and sit down and say, okay, we need a new paradigm here to figure out and uh, not, not just some, not just some make do uh, uh, concessions. Well, you had an example from a writer in here about um, how, you know, if what it takes for him to get to $200,000 a year in, uh, in, in, from his different amounts of work. And it's a lot of work. But he also said he just can't necessarily cobble it together. And it's sort of terrifying to think about how to do that. Like you're always on the precipice. And this quote from a writer, is this this hyperbole where this writer said, uh, told you, in my writer's room, these mid-level writers were not able to afford their year. I think meaning, does that mean they're SAG, I mean, sorry, their WGA uh, minimum? I think that meant uh, just life, their, not life their, expenses, life budget. Okay. I think, yeah, life. They weren't aff- able to afford their year <laughs> and their rent. I bought a nice pair of jeans, and they were like, "Must be nice." I said, "You're a working writer; you can afford jeans." And they said, "No, we can't." I mean, she, is that exaggeration? She claims that they were not. Uh, that was not hyperbole, and they really meant that. Uh, and she 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 says that was not was not a joke, but uh, wow. that they that the younger writers are all, you know, it's, it's, it's like working as a barista now, uh, having, having an entry-level job on these shows. Wow. And I, you know, I will, I want to move on to some other stuff, but you also talk, you know, you talk to people who said like, you know, other people are like, they're getting their real estate licenses and then suddenly they're no longer really a writer, but a real estate broker, or they just move or a teacher. They just all kind of are drifting away. 
Yeah, that's a, that, that's interesting. I, I asked people, um, are, are a lot of people dropping out? And it, it's you don't have to formally declare <clears throat> that I'm I'm not a writer anymore. You just start doing other things, and then the other thing become more and more. And then you have kids, and you need money, and then the other, and and you don't have time to write these spec scripts, and uh, and then you're living somewhere else. Ultimately, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, yeah. but. You've you've stated constantly that the studios and streamers will plead prop will plead poverty when when these negotiations come. But you all, but in your second column you wrote this week, we had a special second Richard Rushfield column this week. You um, ran a chart about CEO to worker pay ratios. Yeah, there's uh, this 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 uh, this this company called. Uh, let me look up the uh, as you sew it S O W. They they do a ranking of the most overpaid CEOs every year. How does entertainment fare? Uh, entertainment, is, it turns out, is the most represented category on the <laughs> uh, on the uh, overpaid CEOs list. It has uh, occupying the number one slot uh, with David Zasloff, who made uh, a mere two hundred forty six million dollars. Uh, I bet he can buy jeans. Yeah, they 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 have a they have a. Uh, uh, calculation of excess pay. I, I, I'm going to get what that was based on, but uh, they calculated of his 246 million, 232 million is excess. So he actually deserves 14 million, and he gets uh, by their calculation he gets. Uh, but also Disney is on there, and uh, and net and and net the CEO of Disney and Netflix, uh, and Apple and Amazon, of course, which. Uh, do other things besides entertainment, but are represented. And but even even more eye catching than than as you as you say the than the uh, salary is the ratio between the salary and the median worker. Yeah. Um, which for uh, for for Warner Brothers Discovery, which has a top slot, that's that's a two thousand nine hundred uh, ratio. So so David Zaslav makes two thousand nine hundred times more than the medium workers company um uh best of all though is is amazon where uh and andy jassy the uh the ceo makes six thousand four hundred times more than the median worker of, of amazon um and and netflix with Net, netflix comes in a mere a mere 200 times more uh reed hastings makes it only only 200 times more than the man worker. of the people so as they go into this uh negotiation with the writers Looking at uh, ratios like that, uh, it's it's uh, it's some congratulations to uh, to Comcast and uh, Viacom for, and, and Sony for not making that list. By the way, <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, really good, um, really good stuff this week, Richard. I think we're will we will we be counting down to the abyss again in your next? Yes, column? yeah, yeah. We're yes, still looking into it. It's and. This week, uh, I'll try to untangle some of these uh, some some of these thornier issues and okay. uh, and and uh, despair for a solution. Okay. Um, well, is this a good time, Sean, for us to talk about well, the? Yeah, let's let's go back to a simpler time, Janice, when everybody made money in Hollywood. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> not everybody, but yeah. <laughs> All these things were not an issue because the writers had no rights back in the <laughs> they were all well, had studio I, deals and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh oh going back God. in time. So uh yeah, why don't you introduce our, our special podcast? Yeah. Uh, today, so we have uh joining us today is David Vincent Kimmel. Uh he is a um a graduate student uh getting a PhD in history at Yale. And um well, David, I'll let you tell tell the rest. He, you you wrote an incredible story for us this week uh, about Gone with the Wind, which I did not think we could possibly know anything more about, but it turns out we didn't know everything. Hi, David. It's my pleasure to be here. Hi, Janice. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Of course. So, okay, give us okay, give us the quick top line of your story and then some background on you and how you got to the essential part of uh, the document that led you to this research? Sure. So I um, am 
I guess I call myself a historian. I am a PhD candidate at Yale, just finishing up my dissertation. Um, I'm in the history department there. My specialty is actually ancient history, but we're trained to uh, talk about a lot of different eras. And I've taught classes, for example, on American economic history as well. Uh, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate where I studied classics, um, and I was also the American debate champion back in 2005 and then was honored to be the coach of the Yale debate team for quite some time. So I've always been passionate about history, about controversial issues, about talking about unpleasant truths and trying to see if we can come to some kind of a deeper understanding. Um, At the same time, I've always been a great fan of Gone with the Wind. I saw it for the first time when I was a little boy, and it completely rocked my world. Um, You know, when you're raised on a diet of Disney movies and you see a film with miscarriages, uh, (laughs) a film with divorce, a film um, about these adult topics, uh, it's really a revelatory experience. And I'll never forget that first time that I saw the movie and how I've rediscovered it again and again throughout my life, um, and always through different eyes, always learning more from it, always getting something new, um, and seeing it also in different ways as I grew up. Um, nevertheless, as a historian, I certainly recognize that while Gone with the Wind is an incredible achievement aesthetically, uh, in fact, arguably one of the most important American films, if not the greatest American film, um, it certainly contains a lot of information that in recent years has rightly been called out as romanticizing the antebellum era. And as time has gone on, that's only become more and more prominent in discourse about Gone with the Wind especially right now in our country where we're having a war over the depiction of our history in classrooms, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Ron DeSantis coming out against AP African-American history, people talking about the 1619 Project. We're at a reckoning point in our own national discourse about how do we interpret the past. And Gone with the Wind is a crucial document within that debate, because this came from 1939, but remained popular as entertainment, not something that scholars would, you know, pour over, but something that families would go to watch on the weekend together, Uh, one of the first color films, something that was just taken as entertainment. And it's such an aesthetic achievement that it can seduce you into its worldview where you think about the antebellum South from the perspective of these aristocratic planters without thinking about the horrors of slavery. Um, So I remember once reading, perhaps, you know, a bit extreme, but that Gone with the Wind was like a romance set in Auschwitz. And as someone who was born in Israel, that really, um, you know, got me thinking. And I began to re-examine this piece that I still think is an incredible aesthetic achievement, but certainly has problematic issues, we might say, and also has certain content that um, even now is causing controversy. Gone with the Wind is always out there in the news for an 80-year-old movie. So with that being said, when I had an opportunity to buy a rainbow script or a shooting script from Gone with the Wind with multicolored inserts, I knew that this was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a piece of not just film history, but world history, whatever we think about uh, Gone with the Wind. And I was really amazed that when I looked into this material, it contained stuff that I never could have imagined. It really took my breath away. And it began a kind of mystery for me. Who inserted these lost scenes um, that it took me a long time to untangle? And I'm so happy that I could I could share that story. Basically speaking, when I first saw the, the script for sale, I noticed one page was highlighted where I saw something was different. I know the movie very well, and I knew that the dialogue was not exactly the same. And I knew this was one of the last Rainbow scripts. So I decided to spend the the 15000 And uh, my mom wants to kill me now that she read that in the article, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> that information has been exposed. And she thought it was a tuition hike. And, uh... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, no one... Yeah, my, the family's been talking about that more than the, the Discovery Act. <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know, I decided to, to gamble that money. And I said, could this contain more? And it, it exceeded my wildest expectations as... 
both a fan of the movie and a historian. And I was just shocked. So many lost scenes and so many of them depicting the brutality of slavery. I had to untangle, how did this get into the movie? What is going on? This is exactly the opposite of Gone with the Wind's reputation for romanticizing slavery in the end. So, so David, let's set the stage a little bit here. Um, so what you are documenting in your story, um, for starters, the opening scene, which I know is not the first time this is getting reported, but the fact that 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. is at the premiere of the movie in Atlanta in a in a church choir um, dressed as a slave is just one of the most, has to be one of the most stunning historical moments, uh, you know, in the, of the last hundred years and meaningful moments. But then what you, so there were a dozen, at least a dozen screenwriters on Gone with the Wind, and anyone who knows this movie knows it went through incredible revisions, and David Oselznik, the producer, was like a lunatic on this film, and I think you said he was, what's what's the, what's the medication he was taking the whole time? Benzedrine. Benzedrine, which is like a, a sedative? Is that uh- I think from what I understand that it was actually the opposite and it made well, that would make sense. And so then, um, and so you, what you construct from the rainbow script and um, is, are the correspondence and you have the actual correspondence going back and forth between David O. Selznick and let's say um, his assistant and publicist and uh, conversations going uh, back and forth between the screenwriters about how to represent slavery's brutality. Um, There was a shocking memo with his publicist about the N-word, which is unbelievable. Uh, But anyway, keep just, uh, if you can describe what what this debate really was. Well, it's it's so fascinating and so troubling as, as well. Um, you know, right now, I believe that Gone with the Wind compared to us is a shorter distance, or maybe it's it's now a longer distance than Gone with the Wind compared to the Civil War. But it's about uh, a midway point. And if you think about it from the perspective of a historian and you see culture evolving, 1939, 90% of the U.S. audience was white. Right. You had people just a few years earlier, like Woodrow Wilson, saying that Birth of a Nation, which was a film that glorified the KKK, was writing history and lightning, is what the future president said. So this was a time when a romantic idea of the Civil War as a kind of struggle over a lost cause was not only out there, but it was dominant in white scholarship about the history of the Civil War. In the 1960s, with scholars like Kenneth Stamp, you started to have a realization that this depiction of the Civil War and of Reconstruction as a corrupt period where Yankees came and meddled in the South was not telling most of the story and was extremely one-sided. But Gone with the Wind coming out in 1939 and the book coming out a few years earlier, it comes at this midway point where the dominant discourse among White scholars are saying the Civil War was a struggle that you know de- defamed the South. It was you know a tragedy that the South had to undergo reconstruction. You had people saying that, but you also had a lot of scholars that were telling the truth about Reconstruction and the Civil War. And David Oselznik's production comes at this point where he has a historical advisor on set who is telling him to read the traditional narratives about the South and the Civil War and Reconstruction, but you also have the NAACP and you have other voices telling him this is not accurate and we're very afraid of what will happen if Gone with the Wind promulgates this mythology. And for the first time, you start having the producer thinking about, should I have an advisor of color on set? Is it okay to use the N-word, even if it's not technically a Hays Code violation, because it might cause offense? And in a way, it shows a bit of a modern aspect of the production, that he's thinking about these very fraught modern issues. But at the same time, it's still a product of 1939, and he's ultimately weighing these different depictions 
and trying to think about how to weave together a coherent narrative in the movie, and things are totally contradictory, and it's causing problems throughout the production, because you have some writers and some creators leaning into romanticizing the South and Moonlight and Magnolias, but you have another faction that doesn't buy that myth and is using their opportunity to tell a different story through Gone with the Wind. So you have screenwriters like Sidney Howard and like uh, Oliver Garrett, who are depicting slavery brutally in early versions of the movie, including Scarlett O'Hara beating one of her enslaved workers with Chrissy, a right? Chrissy, exactly, yep. which is absolutely shocking. And scenes about threatening to sell people south, skinning them alive, separating them from their families, uh, the overseer making references to people beating the slaves. It really is shocking how gritty and uncompromising that early material was. And also that Selznick entertained filming those scenes until the very end, because the rainbow script comes at the end of the production. It's not, you know, from earlier. The Rainbow Script is the final evolution before it's finally edited together into something that is approaching the final product. So it's a fascinating story about how completely contrary to Gone with the Wind's reputation as being a monument to a romanticized South, which is fairly said of the final movie, the earlier iterations were quite the opposite and maybe even revolutionary for 1939 in showing a more realistic depiction of slavery that didn't shy away from its brutality. And one of the reasons was is that Selznick wanted Gone with the Wind to be an epic novel translated to the film where there'd be no compromises. And he knew that Scarlett O'Hara's character was hardened by the Civil War. And one of the ways that we see that is that she mistreats the formerly enslaved workers and the enslaved workers earlier on the plantation. So for Selznick, I think that these scenes were important to the uncompromising depiction of Scarlett O'Hara's hardness as a character. But he ultimately had to weigh that against other voices on set and also his own inclinations when it came to his interpretation of the history of the Civil War. But David, isn't this just, wasn't this just a commercial, weren't weren't these just commercial decisions that were made that if when you, you, you stated the, the uh, size of the audience, 90% white at the time, I mean, he, the, the more difficult and honest story about slavery would not have gotten him this, uh, I think there was a, it was a holiday in Atlanta when the movie premiered, right? They, it was an official government holiday. Um, and it certainly wouldn't have had that kind of reception. I think that it's true that Selznick was aware that especially in the South, Gone with the Wind was going to have a rapturous reception if yeah. he looked into Moonlight and Magnolias. But Selznick really knew that Gone with the Wind, as he said, was going to be on his tombstone. He knew that this is going to be the most important work that he created. And he went through an unprecedented amount of effort to create a work that was true to a four, you know, in four hours, that was true to a huge Pulitzer Prize winning book, down to the point that there was an actor on set that said, they gave me period underwear. And I knew no one would see it under the hoop skirts. So I told Selznick, why are we spending all this money on this lace underwear no one will see? He said, you'll see it. You'll know that it's there. You're the daughter of a rich plantation owner. So he went through an obsessive amount of effort on Gone with the Wind beyond any other film where he knew it would be his legacy and he wanted to create the most important film that Hollywood had yet produced, including access to historians, Um, period costumes, realistic reproductions of Atlanta. It became an obsession. So it is true that on the one hand, he's thinking about commercial aspects of Gone with the Wind, but at the same time, he's trying to create a work of art with a level of fidelity to a literary source that has never been seen before. And a literary source that ended up becoming the best-selling book. What's what's this statistic in, in relation to the Bible? Second only to the Bible. Second only to the Bible. 
you know, it, it was it was received so passionately during the Great Depression. I think people were responding to this story of survival, overcoming the hardships of war. But nevertheless, always in the background was the Civil War. And of right. course, the issue the issue of slavery and how it was going to de- be depicted was also key to thinking about so much people protesting the movie, Southerners being angry that a British woman was hired to play Vivian Lee, the NAACP corresponding with him. And really, for the first time, we have depictions of historical accuracy kind of coming head to head with commercial ideas as yeah. well. And it's not one instead of the other necessarily. He has to think about different audiences, but also his own opinions about the Civil War and the kind of tone of Gone with the Wind, because it could have been this gritty, uncompromising look the, you know, at the psychological pathologies of planters. It's a hard story. You know, her her mother and father die, her husband dies, the, uh, her child. Um, it's not necessarily, um, you know, an inspiring romp if you actually look at the details of it. So there was one vision where it could have been, you know, this darker, more psychologically turbulent narrative. Um, But ultimately, he realized that by leaning into Moonlight and Magnolias, he could accommodate this white Southern and indeed, you know, white American kind of myth of what the Civil War meant, tap into their nostalgia, and then not complicate these characters like Scarlett O'Hara, who if she was shown, you know, brutally set, you know, threatening Chrissy to take her away from her family, um, she might have been less sympathetic as a protagonist. But then again, Scarlett is all about being unsympathetic. So where do these kind of lines, um, you know, where, where should they be drawn? It's not an easy question. And one thing that I'll say is, you can see it in two different ways. One way is if you include scenes of slavery's brutality, people are going to say Gone with the Wind is racist because it's showing people abusing slaves. It's right. showing racist behavior. But if you don't include those scenes, you can say, oh, Gone with the Wind is racist because it's abridging the horrors of slavery. So, so in a way, it's kind of you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And he had to end up deciding on a case-by-case basis what he would adapt from the novel that, by the way, also has scenes of the brutality of slavery in it. So it was a tricky situation for him. And until the very end, he was not totally committed to axing those scenes of the brutality. They stay until the rainbow script. A lot of them do. So he was weighing these different visions. And in the end, he did decide to lean into a film um, that actually actively promulgated aspects of the Lost Cause mythology. That's why Gone with the Wind begins with intertitles that say, this was the last to be seen of masters and of slaves. Look for it only in books because it's only a dream remembered. That, that's a strange way to describe slavery. And even Margaret Mitchell kind of bristled at that. So he leaned into the mythos at the end, but hadn't always been committed to But David, it. I want to point out F. Scott Fitzgerald, one of the dozen fired screenwriters on uh, Gone with the Wind, he had he had written or had had put forth that sort of romanticized vision and the opening scenes of gone with the wind. Right. Oh, yeah. And yeah. yeah. Um, even That's though he, he thought the book was, you know, I think he basically called Margaret Mitchell a hack. I think he, he said she was, she was workmanlike, which yeah, is okay. kind of, <laughs> yeah. what a burn. Burn. The nicest compliment. Um, Yeah, that's absolutely true. So basically, throughout the production, you had realists and romantics on the subject of slavery, with the realists calling for um, a depiction that was more historically accurate, that showed the brutality of the Old South, and romantics who said, we should lean into the kind of mythos of Moonlight and Magnolias, like the film that had just come out, Jezebel, for example, and not alienate these white Southern audiences and even speak to this mythos because it will make the movie more popular. And from beginning to end, he had to weigh these two camps until finally we have, you know, gone with what the we have. Together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But um, it's okay, I want to jump. I want to jump to the to the um, to the premiere and the and the ult, and the eventual Oscars ceremony where um, Gone with the Wind won eight Oscars, uh, but the race infected, you know, the battles over race were a 
issue also on set shooting. And I was not aware that Clark Gable, uh, who played Rhett Butler, um, and who you also have scenes in the Rainbow Script of him contemplating suicide in a much more vivid way than actually makes the mo- in the movie. But um, Clark Gable insisted that the bathrooms be desegregated on set um, because he and Hattie McDaniel became very close. Uh, is that right? They were close. They had they had worked together, but it actually, uh, according to um, you know sources, it w- bit players actually approached Clark Gable. So it wasn't just you know Hattie wow. McDaniel one of the stars he cared about what the um you know the, the bit players had to say about this and he immediately uh worked to help them so it's an incredible story of solidarity on set but um you know you can compare that with the story of butterfly mcqueen being slapped um by by vivian lee in in one of the scenes now vivian lee would slap everybody for real on set not just <laughs> actors of color there was, there was an actress Press service you know whatever it's just she's just going crazy <laughs> One actress said she wore the imprint of her hands for for days, is what she said. When she had to slap someone in the movie, she slapped someone. But when it came to this scene with with uh, Butterfly McQueen, there's another dynamic at play when uh, you know a white woman is is hurting a, a woman of color in a, you know a, a piece about the Civil War. Um, but Prissy, uh, the character of Prissy um, and Butterfly McQueen, who played her. Um, it didn't go down so easily. Butterfly McQueen told the director, who was George Cukor at that point, if she slaps me, I'm not going to scream. And he said, you'll do what you're told. And she said, no, she can slap me, but then your shot's going to be me taking the slap and glaring at her, basically. Wow. If she doesn't slap me, then I'll scream. So she negotiated. And then oh. afterward, Hattie McDaniel told her, you're not going to work in Hollywood after this. You complain too much. <sighs> Patty McDaniel had auditioned for the role of Mammy dressed as a slave. And it really shocks me that Gone with the Wind is bookended by these people of color dressing up as slaves, not in the movie, from Martin Luther King and the choir at the end to Hattie McDaniel dressing as a slave to get the part from Selznick at the beginning. So it is really, you know, fascinating to see the struggles that the characters, um, that sorry, that the actors of color went through portraying these enslaved characters. And David, Hattie McDaniel was the daughter of slaves, which is... She's the daughter of slaves. Yeah, like, unbelievable. Um, and then just quickly at, um, at the premiere, Clark Gable also, uh, was, was the premiere going to be segregated also? Was it, there was something Clark Gable fought for as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That theater uh, in Atlanta was basically segregated. So if Hattie McDaniel had even come, they would have seated her, you know, in a segregated area of, of the theater. And Selznick originally wanted the, the actors of color to be involved in the premiere. He wanted them to campaign in neighborhoods of color for the movie and also to celebrate Hattie McDaniel's performance because he knew that was a response to people who said he was sugarcoating slavery. Actually, he said, I'm highlighting this very multidimensional performance by a Black actor. Um, but in the end, the mayor of Atlanta, you know, insisted and they even took her face off the programs for the Atlanta premiere, though not for the L.A. premiere. Um, and Clark Gable, you know, had to have a meeting with Hattie where she said, this is an important you know, piece of work that I've done. I want our movie to be successful. Please go to the premiere. And only then he, he agreed. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's just the most amazing reporting, um, like so spectacular. Um, thank you so much for bringing your story to the Ankler. Uh, we really, let, we, we all loved working on it with you. So good. Well, it meant the world to me to work with such a great team. And I'm so excited to be able to share my historical research. Thank you for your interest in it. Well, please go to theankler.com to read the story. It's great. It's not behind the paywall um, because we wanted a lot of people to see it. So uh, please check it out. David, thanks so much. And uh, let us know what script you buy for $20,000 next time. Uh, and <laughs> We you, won't tell your parents. <laughs> we won't tell your parents how much you paid for it. So you find us- <laughs> <laughs> Good thanks. luck finishing that dissertation. Yes, yeah, and good luck. Very much. PhD. Almost done. Just have to uh, proofread my last chapters. It's on Roman orgies, which is a very different oh. topic. Wow. Well, too about that, too. We'll get to that. All right. Time. That's our next podcast. Go. Exactly. <laughs> David, <laughs> thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Well, uh, from one Oscar winner uh, to another, Janice, we have uh, 
the final. Richard, Richard, are you going to do an Oscar party circuit uh, report for us next week, or uh, the, the final week of campaigning before the the big show uh, on the twelfth? Yeah, I'll be on as little circuit as possible, but at least one party before the Oscars, and then I'll I'll be at the big show itself. So. Oh, okay. Well, all right, nice. Richard's getting well, a tux. Another tux. <laughs> Another tux. I, I, what happened to the original idea? You're not break. You said you'd break that out if you were going to the Oscars. What happened to the original Richard special original Richard original tuxedo design that I heard so much about? The uh, me- members of my family, all the way down to my uh, my my nine year old child, uh, vetoed that. So. <laughs> vetoed twice, man. All right, one day, Richard, we will give that its light light of day. I will. Uh, Make sure that in the wake up, at least, I will make sure that we get this at some point, I think. Yes, the the day will come. The day will come. Exactly. Uh, Very good. And remember, of course, to follow us uh, at The Angler on your social media platform of choice. Subscribe at TheAngler.com. And, uh, of course, you'll get uh, my full box office rundown on Monday and the wake up newsletter where I'm guessing uh, it'll be more Ant-Man who? uh will be a motif richard you wrote a little bit about this this week about two weeks into ant-man i think we're we're on to creed three this weekend with the uh at least jonathan majors is two two movies in in three weeks here but uh ant-man kind of you know i don't know what was your uh your your brief center brief uh reaction to that i mean it on 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 the one hand marvel is still marvel and uh any there's there's no other company that wouldn't trade places with marvel or no other division that wouldn't trade and then we'd all kill to have the problems that marvel had so disclaimer there uh on the other hand um it's it's been a couple years now of sort of underperformance and 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 uh things things not Going uh, at the at the level the ju- at the juggernaut level that we expected for so long from uh, Marvel, uh, you know, look, uh, every uh, rain comes to a different phase. Richard, I think you know, so we'll have the Avengers to save them all in twenty twenty five or whatever. Yeah, is. I mean, <laughs> you know, you go you, you, you so say they're down a couple notches from their height, and it, 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 you know, you can either from where you are either go up or down. So we'll yeah, it, it, it makes. It, if if you go if you've gone down two notches, then the the bet would be you'll go down three notches, but you can you can still turn that around. Yeah, the the narrative continues. Uh, yeah, you know it makes it makes it more interesting as it goes along for sure. So uh, anyway, I'll wrap up all those numbers, how Creed three fares, and uh, the rest of the box office on Monday in the wake up. And uh, thanks always for listening, and we'll see you next week.